Our scripture reading is from the book of Ephesians. Listen for the word of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, and fasten the belt of truth around your waist, and put on the breastplate of righteousness. As shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. With all of these, take the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the Spirit at all times in every prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert and always persevere in supplication for all the saints. Pray also for me, so that when I speak, a message may be given to me to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it boldly as I must speak. The word of God for the people of God Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we have been working our way through the book of Ephesians from right after Paul, or the author's greeting, to the communities that he was writing to. And all the way up through today, which is the end of his letter except for the very final salutation. So we're very near the end of the letter, and this is the last Sunday we will be spending with Ephesians for now. Just wanted to orient ourselves here. So it was a small, remote village of about 5,000 residents at the most. It was inaccessible for weeks at a time because of the snow in the winter. And at other times of year, it was almost as hard to get to because of thick forests around it. Now this village in southern France was Protestant. 
in a mostly Roman Catholic region. And its people were descendants of the Huguenots, who had a long history of religious dissent. And centuries of persecution had made them wary, proud, and deeply morally conscious. Many of them, them were farmers. They were fiercely independent, and they led lives of quiet piety. And they had a culture of silence that stemmed from enforced caution when it was dangerous for anyone who wasn't Catholic to speak out. For some, the concept and word resistance had become their guiding principle. Now this village had a history of being welcoming and giving shelter to the persecuted and those fleeing and the destitute. Whether those people were priests during the French Revolution, poor children from a nearby home, those fleeing Spain's civil war, or even the first refugees from Austria and Germany who were fleeing the Nazis. And then one evening came a knock on a door. That's how it all began, one cold winter night in the year and the winter of 1940 and 1941. It was a knock on the door of the small village's pastor, Andre Trocme. And when he opened the door, standing outside was a small woman. And she was obviously hungry and cold. She was a Jew fleeing the Nazis in Germany. Could she come in, she asked Trocme. Now Trocme was a firm pacifist, the village's moral compass, and its pastor. He had chosen this remote parish in the village of La Chambon because he knew that his pacifism would be inconspicuous there. In 1938, he had actually helped found an international pacifist school in that village. And not long after, when a leader of the French Reformed Church called on him to ask him to stop aiding Jews because it could harm French Protestantism, what did he do? He refused. And now a Jewish woman fleeing the Nazis was standing outside his door. What did he do? He welcomed her in. Years later, his wife Magda explained, those of us who received the first Jews did what we thought had to be done. Nothing more complicated. The issue was, do you think we are all brothers or not? Do you think it's unjust to turn in Jews or not? Then let us try to help. Now in Nazi-occupied France, where this village was, collaborators delivered 83,000 Jews to Nazi death camps. And 10,000 of those 83,000 were children. And of those 83,000, only 3,000 returned from the camps. And given all that, the La Chabon villagers quietly sheltered and they saved 
5,000 people, pretty much the population of their village. See, they knew the Old Testament well, with its many refugees to rescuing the oppressed and feeding the hungry. And the villagers did not work alone. They were helped by a network of sympathetic clergy, church groups, the World Council of Churches, children's homes, inns, convents, and relief organizations. But it was they, those villagers, who over the course of four years saved 5,000 Jewish people. Now the villagers hid these refugees in plain sight. They housed them in their homes and on their farms. They schooled those refugee children with their own. And as much as possible, they involved these Jewish refugees in the life of the village, in part to avoid suspicion from visitors. We just go about it as if everything is normal, and these people are just here with us. And on those occasions when the Nazis came through, they hid the refugees in those thick forests around the countryside. Now, Trothmay called on his flock to resist whenever our adversaries, demanding us to be obedient, which is contrary to the order of the gospel. And the values of the village were expressed well by the words that their minister ended his sermon with. Every week he ended his sermons with these words. You shall love the God, you shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your mind, and all your soul, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now go and practice it. And Trope himself was actually eventually forced into hiding, but his wife continued his legacy, and with the aid and encouragement of the village residents, many Jews lived there until the war's end. Now, all over Europe, individuals tried to save Jews, but in La Chabon, the entire community became involved in the rescue. So how did this happen? How did this small village of 5,000 people save and hide 5,000 refugees? So some factors, which I've already touched on, included the villagers' straightforward silence, and this actually minimized internal defense. They just did it, and they didn't talk about it, so they couldn't have any struggle in fighting between them. Their pastor provided strong moral leadership, and they had a history of religious persecution. So they knew what it was like to be on the other side of that door, needing help, fleeing persecution. And not only must they have felt a solidarity with those persecuted Jewish refugees, but I bet they felt a solidarity with the early Christians who also faced persecution. And it was those early Christians for whom today's reading was written. So both the early Christians who were living under the military threat of the Roman Empire and the descendants of the Longchamp villagers 
who were living under religious and nationalistic rule of Roman Catholicism, they faced daily harassment, persecution, discrimination, and sometimes actual death. So this solidarity and the other facts, factors I've mentioned, they must have undergirded the villagers' work. And I think today's scripture also provides clues. <laughs> I would say that the villagers of La Chabon embodied the scripture's essence. <laughs> and the scripture begins with, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Surely, the villagers' knowledge of scripture and their history had taught them to turn to God for strength in troubled times. And then the scripture then goes on to describe spiritual forces that the early Christians were urged to struggle against. And it uses an amazing metaphor to paint a picture of how those Christians were to arm themselves in order to resist the forces of the present darkness. And those forces are described as the wiles of the devil, rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers of darkness, and the forces of evil. So clad in protective spiritual armor, those early Christians were urged to resist these forces by being strong in the Lord's power and by using weapons of the Spirit. That is, they were urged to use an arsenal of spiritual resources. And these spiritual resources were things such as the belt of truth, a breastplate of righteousness, Shoes for proclaiming the gospel of peace, a shield of faith, a helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. <coughs> now, the villagers of Lanchabon most likely did not use metaphors such as these to describe their saving work, given their pacifism. Given their culture of silence, they probably actually wouldn't have talked about this at all. They simply did what needed to be done. But these villagers surely were fully armored with those weapons of the spirit, those spiritual resources. They were fully armored with truth, righteousness, faith, salvation, and God's words of proclaiming the gospel of peace. Now I will admit, for me, when I hear today's scripture... I focus on phrases such as enemies of blood and flesh. And I equate the blood and flesh enemies with the Holy Roman Empire, with its deadly military force and its constant threat of violence toward those fledgling early Christian communities. And surely the residents of La Chabon were resisting and standing firm against evil flesh and blood forces of the Nazi regime. But listen again. The full phrase says, it says, our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh. So, 
This isn't to dismiss the fact that the Christians were living under evil flesh and blood forces or to ignore the very real fact of the blood and flesh evils that the villagers in France were resisting. <coughs> but if the evil in this scripture refers not to the external flesh and blood of the Roman Empire, then what is the writer of this Ephesians passage talking about? The passage actually says that it's returning to internal, referring to internal forces. So this passage was meant to encourage the early Christians to battle, to use the image of warfare that the scripture uses. It was used to encourage them to battle internal forces, such as fear and anger and doubt and other responses to the external forces pushing them to abandon their newfound faith. The author is encouraging the members of this early Christian community to meet their internal fear, anger, and doubt by drawing on truth, righteousness, salvation, faith, and the Christian message of God's word. And only by drawing on these spiritual resources and others, which aren't mentioned here, would it be possible for them to proclaim the good news and the gospel of Christ's peace. So those early Christians needed to use their spiritual resources, their spiritual weapons, in their effort to leave behind their old lives and lead the new Christian life they had entered. And those stoic, faithful French villagers must have, at times, struggled with doubt, with fear, with anger, as they labored to proclaim the gospel of peace by harboring those refugees who were fleeing the Nazis. And when we today look at our present world with its hatred and war, with its environmental degradation, with its racism, with its individualism, with its rampant consumerism, with its general hardness of heart, we may respond with doubt, with anger, with fear. And wouldn't it be easier for us to abandon our conviction and belief in the gospel message of love, peace, and justice? It might be easier. But God actually doesn't let us off the, the hook. Instead, those first early fledgling Christians, the villagers of Longchamp, and we also are urged to draw on spiritual resources such as truth, righteousness, faith, salvation, and God's word as we proclaim the gospel of peace. Amen. <clears throat>